Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Political Currency with Ed Bulls and George Osborne. So welcome to Political Currency. I'm at home on my remote computer. I can see, George, from my video screen here that there's snow behind you on a mountain. I'm wondering, is it Aviemore? Are you on a sort of, you know, a New Year break in the Scottish snow? Are you out in Iowa following the American presidential election? Lots of snow out there. Or are you somewhere else? No, I'm in Davos, of course, because not. You know, no. it's my natural home. <laughs> yeah, but that's where the global elites go. Well, exactly. That's... Why are you not here then, Ed? Well, you know, I have to say, I went to Davos once when Gordon Brown was Chancellor very early on, and I never went back. And uh, I'm not totally sure what it was about it. I liked the international meetings. I went to, to Bilderberg, like you, for years, and it was really interesting. You learned You're a one lot of the lizards. Uh, until we got disinvited. <laughs> you know, the lizards, you know, Bilderberg's supposed to be a gathering of uh, alien lizards that meet once a year to uh, run the world. Well, I like going to that. And I'm actually going off next week to um, the Franco-British meeting. But the thing about Davos, it always felt, I mean, not only is it a nightmare to get there, but it's full of people who spend the whole time looking over their shoulder to see who else to talk to. And it's it's very peacocky. And I just didn't really feel like I, I learned much. And I got given the accolade of being a kind of a global leader of tomorrow by Davos, and then it never actually went. And I think I then got not only struck off, but so black marked that when we went into opposition after 2010, I persuaded Ed Miliband we ought to try and go, and then they wouldn't let us come. There was no invite Aww. for us. The really galling thing was then was then John McDonnell, when he was the Shadow Chancellor, went in 2018. John McDonnell was judged okay by the global elite, mm. but they wouldn't have me. Oh Well, I, maybe we should go together next year. I'd go to Aviemore. I'm just not sure I want to go to Davos. It's an amazing, it's an amazing event, actually. Um, and of course, it gets you know a, a quite a bad press, as you know, as you say, a kind of gathering of out of touch elites. But it is quite extraordinary that you get thousands and thousands of political leaders, journalists, business leaders, leaders of civil society, all gathering in this rather small ski resort in Switzerland, and it's been going on for years. The one thing I've noticed. Is there's been a shift. When I first started going about 20 years ago, there was a big American focus. The big American banks had a presence with all the hoardings up on the high street here. And it felt like a quite kind of Western gathering. Now there's a huge Indian presence and there's a, a huge Chinese presence, a big Gulf presence. So, you know, it's become much, much more international. You still have the odd sprinkling of pop stars and so on. I, Who's I, your I, best spot so, so far? I think Sting and Trudy. And Marcus Mumford, and just walk past Will I Am in the street. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, what did Sting say? Uh, well, <laughs> it was a private conversation, and we weren't having tea in the Sahara. 
<laughs> we were we were talking about politics actually a bit. I couldn't find a way to get the conversation around to tantric sex, so uh, we just stuck to uh, global uh, politics and economics. I bet you'd never stop if you started talking about that. Can you imagine? <laughs> Goodness. Anyway, look, less an Englishman in New York, more a couple of Englishmen in Switzerland. Yes, I read in Playbook in London Playbook that you were in some big nightclub party last night. It's not a nightclub. It's called Goals House, the Global Development Goals. It's um, it's the place where people have a nightcap. By the way, there was Rachel Reeves last night. Uh, I saw her, and uh, she was schmoozing and networking, doing the job of the Shadow Chancellor to to let the world know that um, she's there and um, she's getting ready. I guess it's an audition for the role she hopes to be playing next year as the chancellor at Davos. Well, we're going to come back and talk about that in a bit. First of all, though, we're going to have to start talking about Rwanda. The bill went through last night, now into the laws. So we'll talk about that first. Yeah, that's right. And it's one of the reasons, actually, why there haven't been very many British ministers here, because they've been voting in Parliament. But in their absence, there's been a big conversation about the global economy, which we'll talk about, and the British economy, and actually pick up on that point about Rachel being here, and what oppositions need to do to woo businesses in the run-up to an election. And then the third thing we'll talk about is the result of the first big test of the American presidential election process, Donald Trump triumphing in, in Iowa, and the change which I think is happening this week, which is that Trump is moving from being the outlier to being the central expectation for people thinking about foreign policy around the world and how that is going to be changing things. I'm really interested to know what the Trump mood at Davos has been. But let's start with that vote, because um, we know before Christmas, Rishi Sunak decided to do emergency legislation. It's actually going to take him months to get it through. But in order to get to that goal of having asylum seekers on a plane to Rwanda, and uh, he saw off the rebels before Christmas, they were quite aggressive in gloating number 10 about how they'd seen off these rebels. But of course, then comes back to the committee stage in the House of Commons this week and a big rebellion, the biggest certainly of his premiership the night before last. But the amendments were defeated. And then when it came to the, the crunch, were people on the Conservative side, the rebels going to vote with Labour, it would have been the first defeat for a third reading bill in the Commons since the late 1970s. And Lee Anderson, who rather dramatically had resigned as Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party in order to vote for the rebel amendments, he was asked uh, last night why he didn't vote for the third reading with Labour against the government. And this is what he said. I went into the no lobby to, to vote no because I, um, you know, I couldn't see how I could support the bill after backing all the amendments. I got into the no lobby, I spent about two or three minutes with a colleague in there. The Labour lot was all, all giggling and laughing and, and taking the mic, and I couldn't do it in my heart of hearts. I could not vote no, so I walked out and, and come out, so I've abstained. I wanted to vote no, but when I saw that lot in there laughing, there's no way I could support them. So, George, after the chaos of... Boris Johnson and the chaos of Liz Truss. Rishi Sunak is delivering stability and order in government. Well, it's been a very bad week, obviously, for the Sunak government. And, you know, the scene was set not really actually by the Rwanda legislation, but by that big opinion poll about a week ago that said the Conservatives were on course for a landslide defeat. And, you know, that has, as we discussed last week, soured the mood in the Conservative Party, that real sense now that the election is slipping away and all the events since then will have only reinforced that feeling. 
because you know the big offer that Rishi Sunak brought when he became prime minister was that he was going to restore, as you say, stability and good government and order. And that is hard to persuade people you're doing when you have an open civil war inside your party and your two deputy chairmen resign on you and uh, you have a big rebellion. So, you know, it's clearly been, and, and we know as uh, the Tory election strategist, who's a you know, very smart guy called Isaac Levito, said to the Conservative MPs a few days ago, divided parties don't win elections. So it's not, not been, you know, it's not in any sense been a good week. I would make this observation though, and it'd be, you know, I think if you were putting the case for Rishi Sunak at the moment, you'd say he didn't blink again. You know, he does see down these rebellions. And in the end, only 11 Tory MPs, after all of that noise, chose to vote against his Rwanda legislation. And he'll now say, okay, over to the House of Lords, and I can have a fight with the House of Lords, and that's good. And over to Labour, because the more this legislation progresses through Parliament, we will eventually reach a point, quite possibly before the election, where it becomes law. And the question will go to Keir Starmer, are you going to repeal this if you become Prime Minister? That's right. I mean, just before we move on to kind of what happens next, that poll in the Telegraph was very striking, not simply because of the numbers. And, you know, we all know polls can can shift a lot. But the fact that it was in the Daily Telegraph on the front page with an article by David Frost from the House of Lords, Boris Johnson's former Brexit negotiator. And it felt like um, a real operation that poll, a political move rather than simply an opinion poll being reported in, you know, a national newspaper. Well, that's right. I mean, this all started many years ago when Michael Ashcroft started doing his own polling. And, you know, he had been deputy chairman of the Conservative Party when I was involved. And when he left, he started doing his own polling. And it was quite destabilizing because, of course, he would ask tricky questions that the Conservative Party didn't really want to have the answer to. And this latest uh, poll, which was very expensive to commission, seems to have been fronted by this guy, David Frost, who's a kind of hardened Brexiteer. You know, what's really um, got under the skin of Tory MPs is that it has constituency by constituency breakdown of, are you going to win your seat? And most Tory MPs, or around a half, rather, of Tory MPs, when they look at that now, they go, oh, I'm going to lose my job this year. And, um, you know, that makes party management incredibly difficult. And, you know, at the end of the week, the newest poll shows that the Tory rating is down to 20%, which is what it was when Liz Truss quit as prime minister. On the so front of the Times, is the, that one. Yeah. So that, you know, that is the backdrop to all of this. Of course, there's important substance in the Rwanda legislation. There's a big question of how you tackle illegal immigration, which is, by the way, here in Davos, you know, a theme that all of the Western countries are wrestling with. So it's certainly not a unique British problem. But I think you have to put it in the political context. But as I say, Sunak will say, I faced down the rebels. The rebels were divided. I didn't blink. I didn't give in. I didn't give concessions. You know, And now I'm making progress with substantive policy, which I believe, this is you know, what Sunak would say, I believe is going to deter illegal immigration and stop the boats. I mean, tactically, uh, I know it was hard for him because he's also had pressure from the sort of centrist conservatives. But if he had given a concession, a further concession, I wondered on Monday whether this was a smart piece of politics with um, Lee Anderson and the other deputy chair who resigned, who I have to admit, I can't remember his name. What was his name? Brendan. Brendan somebody. Anyway, <laughs> whoever he is, he resigned too. And I wondered whether, you know, are they resigning in order to 
back the amendment, which in the end, Rishi Sunak comes around and it's the extra thing which becomes a bridge to the future, a uniting thing. Because the problem for, for the Prime Minister now, it's not enough to get the legislation through. He's got to get asylum seekers onto a plane. Even if he gets an asylum seeker onto a plane, it's still incredibly expensive. So that charge of an expensive gimmick is still there. But it's, it's running at about £300 million for a seat on a plane. That's, I mean, that's the cost of the Rwanda policy. You know, Exactly. Uh, but even then, the question becomes, is that enough of a deterrent to stop the boats? And that his, 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 his pledge isn't to get somebody on a plane for a huge cost. It's to stop the boats. But it's still not clear whether his path from today through the Lords to actually getting through the legal process to an asylum seeker going onto a plane, you know, whether that's doable. And he's now, within his own party, has people saying, we told you it wouldn't work. So it's still quite a, a risky and difficult path right. for him. It's also, you know, as we've discussed, completely the wrong thing to be talking about. We have now spent much of the first few weeks of this year, the year in which there will be a general election, talking about immigration and what was originally a kind of wedge issue, partly designed under the Boris Johnson government against Labour, has become this weapon that's been turned on the Tory party and created all these splits. And, you know, as we've discussed, they should not be talking about this. They've got to be talking about the economy if they've got any chance of mounting a successful election campaign and their economic plan and how Labour would put it at risk. And, you know, they're just not every day that goes past. That's a kind of missed opportunity. I know there's enormous frustration right throughout the cabinet, as well as the parliamentary party, that they haven't managed to kind of focus the political message on, on the economy. And that's the dilemma for Sunak, because does he take your advice does he move on to the economy now? There was a briefing to Alex Wickham in Bloomberg at the weekend saying that once they've got this week done, it's now all about the economy. But if, on the other hand, they want to put Labour under pressure, they can only do that by keeping Rwanda and the boats and asylum seekers in the news and at the centre of things. Of course, it puts Labour under pressure. I mean, what would Labour do? I was thinking about... Um, how I would think about this. And, you know, of course, if you're Labour, you're going to keep focusing on the cost and is it working and have the boat stop and is it a deterrent? But how you deter the gangs, how you stop the criminal activity does seem to me like a big deal. And Keir Starmer, as leader, needs to move beyond simply saying we're going to tackle the criminal gangs. And there is something here that because of Brexit and its aftermath, we are now, as a country, not part of the international networks we were in before the European arrest warrant. There's a database called SIS2, which means that any time a car is arriving at a border within that network, you know, is it stolen? Is it a car or a passport of a person who's been involved in illegal activity before? Is it linked to past trafficking stuff? And if you're not part of that network, that database, it's much harder to manage your borders. So this is a cooperation with our European partners, which isn't about joining the single market or the customs union, but it is about having a trying to restore a deeper relationship to cross-border criminal and police kind of activity and cooperation. That is something which Labour can talk about in a way that is much harder for Rishi Sunak. Not that he would disagree. I mean, uh, you know, I would think Rishi Sunak would want to be there, but his his party may not allow it. Yeah, no, but I think you make a very good point. And um, 
I guess to sort of sum it up, you know, Labour shouldn't be talking about the country of Rwanda. They should be talking about the country of France. And there is an opportunity, partly because people increasingly on the continent of Europe expect them to be the government, and because they don't have the Brexit baggage. You know, every European politician I ever meet reminds me that Rishi Sunak voted for Brexit. You know, they have not forgotten that. So Labour, you know, I think could make an interesting move, even in opposition, and uh, go to France, meet with the French government, and say we're underway in discussions to strengthen the security on the northern French border on the on the French coast. And that is more likely to have uh, an impact than, as you say, this Rwanda legislation. And you're right also that the idea that you can switch the economy and at the same time think you can get politics out of a fight with the House of Lords or putting Labour on the spot about it, that doesn't compute. The Rwanda is going to keep coming back and blotting out frankly, more boring messages, but politically necessary messages on the economy. To be but fair, anyway, to- there's an opportunity for Labour. If I was Labour, I wouldn't just sort of sit there and say, great, what fantastic to watch the Tory body imploding, you know, because I think otherwise you're suddenly going to be the people who face all the difficult questions in the middle of the year. I would be kind of leaning into it now. So when the Tories say, vote Labour and they'll bring back a kind of illegal immigration chaos, you go, no, 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 we've got a much better plan and we've already been to Paris and negotiated this or started negotiating this. Or, you know, it's, it's really important for an opposition to anticipate in an election year the very tough questions that they haven't really had so far, but they are going to get before polling day. And talking of that, we should move on and anticipate the tough questions that Labour's going to face on the economy. And that's going to depend hugely upon the economic backdrop in the UK and around the world. I'm really interested to know from you what is the mood in Davos about the state of the global economy, how that will impact into the UK. And we'll talk about that next. So the politics at the beginning of 2024, quite complicated. Trump winning in Iowa, the uh, deepening challenges in the Middle East. But on the economy side, I think the general view is that the global economy feels in a better shape than it was in October, November, December, that sentiment has improved somewhat. Inflation's come down more sharply around the world than people expected. Is that the Davos mood? Yes, very much so. I've just come from one of the kind of gatherings here, which was chaired by the head of the IMF, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, and uh, Jeremy Hunt was there. He arrived at two in the morning because he could only leave after voting on the the, uh, uh, Rwanda bill. And there was, you know, there was actually a sort of show of hands in the room. She asked a question do people feel that 24 is going to be better than 23? And a majority of people, not everyone, but a majority of people thought the economy was going to be stronger in 2024. And, and you know, I think the biggest thing that's going to have uh, delivered, and actually we should give credit to the central banks who've done this, is that the inflation challenge seems to be much more under control than it was a year ago. A year ago, people really didn't see where the top of the rate cycle was going to be. They thought there was going to have to be a kind of hard recession to bring inflation under control. And there's a lot of talk here of what's the so-called soft landing, that you can you can kind of constrain the economy without crashing it in order to bring inflation down. So I would say the mood's pretty positive on the economy and very gloomy on global politics. And, uh, you know, one thing that's really struck me is an enormous amount of anger around Gaza. And there's a there's a real feeling from the rest of the world outside of the West that uh, there's real double standards and hypocrisy, and there's not been enough condemnation of 
the campaign in in Gaza by the Israelis, and that that to me has been one of the most sort of striking and sort of uh, rather shocking things you know to hear. So very bad on the kind of geopolitics, but rather optimistic on the economy. But of course, while I've been here, there's that been that news, hasn't there? on UK inflation actually rather unexpectedly going up. Does, does that matter or is it just because uh, tobacco taxes went up or you know something like that? Look, it's the nature of the way the economy is reported. That it's always going to be, whenever there's a piece of news, it'll be reported as hopes of interest rates cuts rise or hopes of interest rates cuts dashed as. And yesterday was a, a dashed moment. You know, People were expecting inflation to come down from 3.9% in November to 3.8% in December, it actually blipped up to 4%. So it went the opposite direction. So a bit of negativity in the reporting. But fundamentally, you know, October 22, inflation was over 11%. It's come down now faster than people expected. That month blip in December was actually driven by mainly higher tobacco and alcohol prices because of the rise in duties, which had gone up by inflation. So it's quite a backward-looking thing. The day before, the labour market data was unemployment low and flat, but pay settlements came down more than expected to 6.5%. So on the one hand, pay settlements now going up higher than inflation, so that's better for people's incomes, but pay settlements coming down faster than expected eases the pressure. And I think it feeds into the point you made about central banks, which is um, you know, if this inflation had been caused by central banks being behind the curve on demand management that allowed too much heat and money in the economy. And therefore, they were struggling to slow things down without a big recession and a long period of much higher interest rates. Actually, inflation has come down much faster than expected without a big deterioration in growth because it was probably more driven by what economists call supply-side factors, that rise in oil and gas prices, the unwinding of the pandemic and the hit in the short term because of supply chain issues to kind of food and wider prices. And as those pressures ease, and they have eased, inflation is coming down. So, you know, if central banks can see inflation coming back towards target without big recessions and um, interest rates falling by the middle of this year, that is what we would call a soft landing. And that is a big achievement in a post-pandemic global economy. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, you know, often read commentary about how governments are broken, institutions don't work anymore, you know, the system isn't delivering. You know, here are deliberate policy interventions by a series of central banks, the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England that have worked, appear to have worked, and delivered that incredibly hard thing to do, which is that that soft landing whilst containing inflation. But I would say there is a kind of somewhat different story. It, it may be supply-side issues, particularly in Europe, that cause that high inflation, i.e., for example, the war in Ukraine drove energy prices up. But in America, it still looks like a very hot economy, quite a different story across the Atlantic. And much more expansionary fiscal policy, big tax cuts, more spending. So that was much more of a demand And wage thing growth, you know, strong wage growth, absolutely. And one interesting thing I heard here was that US productivity, which has been flat really for 20 years, is now ticking up. And that would be pretty uh, important for the global economy if that's the case, because that will deliver real meaningful benefits. I would just say, I think, you know, we've got a caution here about what it's going to feel like to real people, real people voting in elections, whether it's in America or Britain or anywhere else. When you say inflation's come down, prices are still going up 
at 4% a year. And even in those numbers, food inflation, which is probably the thing people buy most often and uh, you know, are most exposed to, is still going up at 8%. And uh, so, you know, I think it's hard for the government or any, you know, not just the British government, but other governments like the Biden administration. You know, you, you want to say the plan's working, you know, rates are going to start coming down. There's a there's a kind of Sunday uplands ahead. But you've got to get that tone right because you can look really out of touch if you're too self-congratulatory when that is not going to be how many people are feeling. And those high interest rates are still feeding through to people as they remortgage and uh you know or they're a company and they've got to renegotiate their their loan you know they're still for many people it's a dramatic increase in the mortgage payments they used to pay look that is all completely right and that's partly why joe biden is struggling in the opinion polls even though the economy has been much stronger than we've seen as you said in britain and europe because people are not feeling it the problem for labor in 2010 actually for Ken Clark in 97, was saying, you know, it is getting better. And people thinking, I know, but it was you guys who are in charge. You messed the economy up and we've had enough. And whether an improving economy this year is enough to persuade people to, to vote Conservative. I mean, it worked for John Major in 1992, but of course the big economic crash didn't happen until after the election in the autumn of 1992. And that comes back to this um, communication thing. If Rishi Sunak, in a sort of slow, steady, careful way, is saying, look, it is improving and we're starting to get better, don't put it at risk, uh, which I think is a Jeremy Hunt instinct, you can see how that might start to work. I'm still not sure it'll be enough. But if you go out and say to people, it's a triumph, inflation's come down, we've succeeded, there's a real danger that backfires. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, to deliver that former message, which is slow, steady improvement, you've just got to bang away at that message. And in the run-up to the 2015 election, David Cameron and I kept talking about the long-term economic plan to such a point that people were like, oh, will you stop going on about your long-term economic plan? But, you know, we were trying to get across quite a kind of dull message that we had a plan and it's not that, glam- you know, it's not the most glamorous name for a plan, is it? Long-term economic plan. But it conveyed, or we hoped it conveyed, of authority and progress, and we, you know, we had a, a sense of where we were taking. But Rachel Reeves did do a bit of that with her Securonomics speech. The problem is that was quite Biden-esque, and at the moment, the Biden argument isn't quite working for for Biden. So I think that they have to sort of think harder about the nature of that story. I think you know, I mean, of course, all roads lead to Tony Blair, particularly here in uh, <laughs> this conference where he's essentially the king of the conference, the Tony Blair Institute, which is. Will come, by the way, an incredible powerhouse in uh, centre-left thinking in Britain, and seems like it's going to supply half the uh, special advisors in a, if there's a Labour government. But you know, I think he makes an argument about harnessing technology to progressive goals on education or income inequality. And yeah, I personally think that's somewhere where I think the opposition could take it. What they're doing right, and what I've seen through my own eyes here is the uh, prawn cocktail offensive. Well, they used to call the prawn cocktail offensive because, you know, you used to have to go around these city drinks parties and be you would have your sort of prawn cocktail canapé. So it's a bit more of a cheese fondue offensive out here in Davos. But uh, Rachel Reeves and um, Jonathan Reynolds, the shadow business secretary, they are out here wooing business. There was a big 
breakfast that JP Morgan hosted for them. JP Morgan, you know, don't waste their money on breakfast with people they don't think are going to win. And, you know, I think they are doing that in a really systematic and effective way. And if anything, the absence of the conservative ministers, but the notable exception of my friend David Cameron, who's been here as the foreign secretary, but of course he's not in the House of Commons, the absence of conservative ministers and the deliberate absence of Rishi Sunak, which I personally think is a mistake. I think he should be here. I mean, he is, you know, this is his natural environment. He could be telling a good story about his premiership if he was here, has left the field open to Labour. And it really feels like the kind of here in uh, this global gathering, it's the Labour Party rather than Conservatives who have uh, been kind of grabbing the microphone for Britain. Look, of course, what you want in opposition is to show that you are stable and united and that the leadership's in charge. And a few years ago, that wasn't how Labour looked. It does now. And I guess the problem for, from a business point of view, from the point of view of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, is they can't be there because they're dealing with chaos politically at home. And when Rishi Sunak says, I promise you business stability and a long-term plan, but at the moment, the business view would be, I know, but I mean, how do we even know you're going to be the leader of the Conservative Party in a year's time because of all of those tensions and pressures that are being worked out this week. And I think that you think from a business point of view, whether you think these guys are in charge and have got a grip and can see it through is important alongside the policy and the vision. No, I mean, for business, it's like follow the politics. And, you know, they're taking a view like many other people that Labour are pretty likely to win. I mean, yeah, it reminds me a lot, actually, in the run-up to the 2010 election, where David and I made a really systematic effort to prize business off the kind of Blair Brown coalition. You know, they'd done, you know, you, they had done a really effective job of kind of winning over the kind of CBI types. And, uh, you know, we, we went business to business. And, you know, I remember Philip Green was a kind of big business figure at the time. He'd been knighted by the Blair government. You know, I used to have to go to his apartment at the Dorchester Hotel to woo him over. He would always produce, he'd always produce a couple of bottles of wine and say, which one do you want, George? And then I would go, uh, I don't know, huge amount of wine. So I would go, oh, well, that one. And he'd go, oh, you, you, you didn't choose the best one. Poor you. Anyway, we'll have that one then. So <laughs> it went to great efforts to get all these people to support us. And it actually meant in the 2010 election, we were able to deliver a business letter of endorsements, which was pretty important in that 2010 campaign because it showed that the business mood has shifted. And I guess, you know, you you did the same with Gordon in the run-up to the 97 election. I've been through the full cycle of um, the Labour business relationship. So um, when I left the Financial Times and started with Gordon in the mid-90s, I mean, we were in the, the foothills and we had some missteps. Um, I remember, I think I think it was Gordon's, one of his early trips to the CBI, can't remember whether it was 94 or 95. And he decided that he would do an interview. It was actually with PA, strangely, the Press Association, in which he said he had business in his blood because he wanted to kind of appeal to the business world. And he was the, in the interview, he talked about how his family had had business links and his mum had been a director. And yeah, then, um, didn't he used to sell programmes outside the uh, Wraith uh, Rovers Stadium? He did. And um, the night before his speech at the CBI, we were in this Indian restaurant it's just south of the river called Gandhi's, I think. 
I remember it really well because Gordon always ate the same food at any restaurant. So that night he had lambuna, a puerhuari naan and uh, pilau rice because uh, that's what you always had. And um, <laughs> But we're in this Indian restaurant and Charlie... Your, really, your head is full of some really useless pieces of information. I know, lambuna and a puerhuari naan. If it was Chinese, it would have been lemon chicken. Anyway, and so there we were and Charlie Whelan's with us, gets this kind of call from PA to say they had been to interview Gordon's mum, the doorstep to at her house. And she had denied any knowledge of any of these business links and says, oh, Gordon, I don't know why he says these things. So, of course, we go into the CBI conference with the opposite of, you know, business in my blood. Well, actually, I'm afraid his mum said, no, it's not. So this was like a kind of catastrophic start to our business engagement strategy. And then, as you say, we then went through a long period where we really, really strengthened it. And it is so important, especially for labour, to show that that you can work with the people who create wealth and jobs and you can criticize them and you can challenge them and you can argue with them and sometimes do difficult things. But if you don't have a relationship. How about your endorsements in the run-up to the uh, 2015 election when you were shadow chancellor? 2015 was much harder. Ed and I used to kind of discuss this because Ed was, was less inclined to believe that the Labour coalition he was trying to um, build needed kind of strong business endorsement and support. But we did do some business outreach, but it was really quite hard. And um, at the time, people weren't really willing to come forward. And um, I was doing a fundraising event. And then I went on Newsnight. It was it, it was actually the day when we did our John Armit report about long-term infrastructure planning, which you then snaffled and took control of, which I'm still bitter about, but we'll discuss that another time. And so I'm on Newsnight and there'd been stuff around about, did Labour have business relations. And Emily Maitlis said to me on Newsnight, I wasn't expecting this. She said, you have no business support. I said, it's not true. I said, I talk to business people all the time. And she said, you know, tell me one. And I said, well, I've just been at a fundraiser talking to an important business supporter. And she said, and who was that? And I said, well, it was Bill. And I suddenly realized I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember his name. Total. Come on, let's dig out the clip. Total Come disaster. On. Go on, okay, let's, let's hear, let's hear it. I have to say, I did rather enjoy this, listening to it in number 11 at the time. As I said, there will always be some business people who are supporting Labour. I've been at a dinner tonight with a number um, of business supporting Labour figures. Who, there, who, there'll who? be some, well, um, uh, the um, uh, Bill, um, the former chief executive of, of EDS, who I was just talking to just a few moments former ago before chief I came over. Of EDS, EDS, of course, who's a big supporter of ours. What was his name? But well, uh, to be honest, it's just gone from my head, which is a bit annoying at this time of night. So yes, uh, poor old Bill Thomas was then besieged for days. Uh, you actually Bill somebody. Big, Bill somebody, Bill Thomas, big business supporter, did loads of stuff working with um, Labour and Conservative governments. I remember, as sometimes happens, you'll know this, it was like I drifted up into the ceiling with the camera lights and was looking down at myself saying, well, you've really, really screwed that up. <laughs> And I was saying, look, shut up, leave me alone. I've got to do this interview with Emily Maitlis. I was, it was like I was going to lose it. But my other self was saying, you're done. There's no point. And I then come out and my press guy was there, Alex Bladenelli. I said, what do you think? And he said, there's no point even talking about that interview. <laughs> That was a few of those. That was kind of it. There is no point. <laughs> but what you just did was catastrophic. And then you then the next morning it was PMQs the next day, and David Cameron and you were gloating like mad. And I thought we wouldn't Shh. do that. Would we do that? Anyway, anyway, David Cameron. Well, he's he's here in Davos, and I tell you what, all the talk is though. It's not actually of the economy. It's not of climate change, which was a big topic here the last couple of years. 
It's in fact Donald Trump, the one person who isn't here in Davos, although he used to come as president. I thought you were going to say they were talking about political currency, that that was the thing which everybody was talking about at Davos. Well, did you know, quite a lot of people have come up and said they uh, enjoy this podcast. And uh, David Cameron was asked on Anne McElvoy's own podcast called Power Play whether he listened to us. And uh, this is what he said. Would Do you listen be... to George Osborne's podcast? I, I have, because uh, he told me to. So I did listen to one of his. I think I want more podcasts about what's happening in New Hampshire and what's going to happen in South Carolina. And what's, I mean... Like all politicians, you can't help but be drawn into this extraordinary process that takes place in this massive democracy and trying to understand what's going to happen next. So, David, we're now going to talk about American politics because you want to hear more about that. And uh, we'll be discussing the result from Iowa next. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So the big topic of conversation here, and of course, in many, many capitals around the world, was the result of the Iowa caucuses, which kicks off the American election season. And, you know, perhaps not a great surprise, but Donald Trump completely stormed them. And he he, he obliterated his uh, Republican rivals, Nikki Haley and Governor DeSantis uh, among them. And increasingly, the talk is, we're going to have a Trump presidency again. But it's interesting, you know, I think if you listen to him, and he is, you know, obviously a very smart operator, whatever you think of his politics, that his message in Iowa was a conciliatory one when he's normally so aggressive. And this is this is what he said. What a turnout, what a crowd. And I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. It would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing. That's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important. And I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. It's going to happen soon, too. It's going to happen soon. It's really interesting because you can hear his campaign advisors briefing him in advance and saying, you know, for the last couple of years, you've been very anti-Democrat, anti-Biden, talking about kind of revenge and retribution. And that is not going to work for the swing voter when it comes to the presidential election, as opposed to these nomination caucuses where you're just appealing to that kind of core Republican vote. And if it sounds like you are using the storming of the capital rhetoric, that will put off the swing voter. And therefore, you need to have a more uniting conciliatory message. The problem is, does that last beyond election day or does he double down on the old Trump? And I guess you know, I wondered when you're out in Davos, the, the Americans, more broadly, business people you're talking to, are they thinking that Trump could be a better 
president in his second term? Are they kind of hoping for that more uniting open message or are they or are they scared? Well, I think, you know, one of my favorite American expressions about politics is power is where power goes and people are beginning to rationalize uh, the possibility for Trump presidency. I, bet it's, I think it's a bit premature, to be fair. I, I think we shouldn't write off Joe Biden, who beat Trump last time. And at the moment, you know, people are sort of giving their verdict on Biden in polls, but they're not yet faced with the kind of actual choice, Biden or Trump. So, you know, I think it's a bit premature to say we're going to have Trump. But I think what is also right is, I think that kind of idea that only crazies can vote for Trump, only the most kind of dispossessed, poorest, left behind people in America, people who cling to the Bible and the gun, you know, the deplorables, as Hillary Clinton once described, you know, the idea that those are the only people who are supporting Trump is such a mistake. And I thought there was a really interesting intervention here by Jamie Dimon, the world's top banker, effectively been running JP Morgan for years and years and years. And he said this on a CNBC interview, which is quite a liberal news channel, where he kind of basically pulled up the interviewers and the kind of general commentariat here, the liberal commentariat, when they say that, uh, you know, no, no one sensible can, can support Trump. And he, he made this point about the fact that some of Trump's instincts on policy, in, certainly in Jamie Dimon's view, have turned out to be true. When people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them, that you are like him. Uh, and but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. And if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Mm-hmm. He was right about some of China. I don't. Th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when he, yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about so these critical issues, and that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should, have, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to Trump? hate 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done quite well. And, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, not- hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Yeah. So, you know, what Jamie Dimon is saying there is that Trump demanded that other NATO countries pay more for their defense. They have. The economy under Trump, household incomes in America went up by 10% under Trump, and they've been largely stagnant under Biden. And even on immigration, you might not have thought that you know building a wall was going to solve anything, but he was onto it as a really toxic issue that needed to be addressed. So I thought that was interesting. And there's a very smart Harvard uh, political professor called Graham Allison, who's just written an article called The Trump Put. And what that means is that people are beginning to anticipate the possibility of a Trump presidency, not just the American business community, but the international community. And that is going to have a huge impact on foreign policy on issues like Ukraine, Gaza, and so on. That's right. But the problem is we were just talking about how what business wants is stability and predictability. And that is what Trump doesn't offer, because the problem is we don't know what Trump will get. I think the betting markets at the moment are broadly Trump 40%, Biden 30%, somebody else 30%. And that can shift. But you know, in the Trump-Biden race, Trump is winning. But which Trump will we get? Will we get a Trump who says, I fought China on trade in my first term and I won and therefore we can now work together? Or does he double down on tariff Trump who wants to erect trade barriers? Does he say, 
I warned Europe in NATO and they're stepping up? Or does he follow through with the idea that when it comes to war on the continent of Europe, and that includes in Ukraine, he's disengaging? When it comes to um, you know, to, to Taiwan, we talked about this um, recently, what stance does he, he take if China starts to get into fights with the new nationalist um, president there? We don't know which Trump we're going to get. And that is, you know, at minimum, a source of great uncertainty. And you know, it could be a dangerous Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard enough for the British government as is to deal with it. But it, but it may not be a conservative problem. It was a conservative problem for Theresa May back in 2016 and 2017. And, you know, I think she did her best to manage the, the you know, eccentric Trump uh, relationship. But this could well be, couldn't it, Ed, like the one of the absolute kind of defining challenges for a Labour government, because they could be elected almost exactly the same time. And, you know, people like Keir Starmer, David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, I mean, in the past, David Lammy has said that Donald Trump is a Ku Klux Klan sympathizer. In fact, Keir Starmer was already anticipating uh, how he's going to have to deal with Trump when he said this. One of the things about being a leader is you don't get to choose the other leaders around the world. Um, that is the job of um, democracies where there are democracies. Um, but in a grown-up world, you have to make that relationship work. What do you think, Ed? I mean, you know, in many ways, the sort of one of the absolute sort of defining features of the Blair Brown years was the relationship with a Republican president, George W. Bush. How will Starmer, Lammy and co handle Trump? And does it pose real problems for the left? Look, of course it's right. You have to be pragmatic. And of course, it's not for Keir Starmer to decide who is the president of America. It's for American voters. And if they vote for Donald Trump, then that's who you work with. That is a democracy. But I think that the important thing is you have to start putting some markers down. David Lammy, in his interview in the Sunday Times at the weekend, was saying there will be some differences, but there are many more areas on which we can continue to work together. And that's fine. There will be areas where you can work together. But I think you need to put down the markers where you have like a principled view. I think one lesson you might draw from the challenges that Keir Starmer faced in um, Israel, Gaza, after the, uh, the October 7th attack from Hamas into Israel, and then the Israel response is that maybe he needed to have laid down some principles in advance, which he could come back to, because if not, it looks too pragmatic. And from a Labour government point of view, you need an America which is respecting democracy and the rule of law within America. You need an America which is um, a player in NATO and a, a reliable partner. They may need you it, need... but they're not going to have it, are they? Well, if, it's a, if it's a Trump presidency. If Trump ends up in office doing things which are very, very kind of damaging, unacceptable, and at that point you have to to respond and push back. That is a much harder thing to do. It's better to have laid down your position in advance and say, you know, we've always been clear that this is the global community. This is what mutualism and respect and cooperation is all about. And so if you start to see uh, America playing damagingly fast and loose in Ukraine or with trade policy, then you need to be able to challenge that. And you need to be able to challenge that from a position of principle and I would be laying down my markers now. I wouldn't be waiting. I wouldn't simply have a pragmatic 
we work with whoever we get approach. I would say, well, of course we'll work with whoever we get and we'll respect the result of the American election. But let's be clear, we have a view of the world and we have principles which guide us and we think we have mutual obligations to each other in the international community and this is what they are. Because if not, the danger is you look like you're blown around. Yeah, so it's interesting. We, we, we should bring this uh, episode to a conclusion, but um, it's been an episode actually largely about the Labour Party. Well, certainly the takeaways I take are, you know, on Rwanda... Labour should be now leaning into how it will respond if this legislation, despite all the chaos, goes through. On the economy, you know, we want to be hearing more about Labour's economic approach and the kind of philosophy behind it. And as you're just saying, on Trump, they should be anticipating and preparing now for the possibility of a Trump presidency. And certainly not the last word I suspect we're going to have on Donald J. Trump this year potentially shaped by these opinion polls this week, which we started off talking about. And, you know, I still think this could be a tighter election than people think. I think the polls will narrow. I think it is still you know, a real challenge for, for Labour, given the position in, in Scotland, to get to um, a really working majority. But every time there's a big poll, as the election comes closer, you know, that that does shift, as you say, more focus onto what will Labour do? And what principles on the economy and on foreign policy will guide their approach? And this is the time to set them out. Right. So that's it. We're not doing questions now. We've been receiving so many questions and comments from you that we now have a separate special episode uh, each week on Monday, which we call Ex-Ministers Questions. We had our first last week. I hope you enjoyed it, those who listened. Uh, Those who don't, make sure you follow us on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast and of course keep sending all those questions in we are we are getting so many great questions that we're spoiled for choice each week it's true i mean the the number of questions this week was 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 amazing and don't forget we're always in the market so please do send your questions to us at questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk and whether that's a an economic or political term that you think needs defining a burning question you've always wanted um, to know the answer to. We will tackle everything and anything. And this week, we're going to do a couple of questions which follow up from um, our first EMQs and also from our Inside the Room Coalition talks about talk about tuition fees and what happens if there's a crisis while a government is still being formed. And then we've also been asked, um, what was the marmalade dropping moment that we never actually managed to do? I have to say, what does it mean? What is a marmalade dropping moment? Oh, you know, when you're reading something in the paper at breakfast and you literally drop your marmalade toast. Because you're so, you're so you surprised. Be... Anyway, you will find out because we were... We... Why, why, why would you be reading the paper and holding the marmalade? Well, these are the, we're supposed to be answering these questions, not asking them, Ed. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> anyway. We, I mean, to be honest, it was new to me, marmalade dropping, but I'm quite excited so about we it. are. we will have our next episode of EMQs in your feed on Monday and Political Currency... We'll be back next Thursday. Thanks for joining us this week. See you soon and have a safe trip back from Davos, George. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.